sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about an off-duty New York City corrections officer that shot and killed an 18-year-old man there in New York. Also going to be marking the anniversary of the July 26th movement inside Cuba. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, the Biden administration is facing yet another looming deadline as the last extension on the pause on student loan repayments is approaching the August 31st deadline. The Department of Education has been telling student loan servicers, however, not to contact borrowers to start demanding that money as the deadline approaches, which signals that they are expecting the Biden administration to announce yet another extension. And honestly, that's the least, and I do mean the very least, that the Biden administration could and should do because he should have done it already. Scott Buchanan, the executive director of the Student Loan Servicing Alliance, which represents all of the companies that service the federal loans subject to the administration's moratorium, he said that, quote, we needed to know two months ago, but really, we're at the Rubicon here. If we get into August and don't have guidance on this, I mean, we're really creating an untenable position for us and for borrowers. I guess Biden was too busy allocating all that money to Ukraine over the past few months. What's the total now? Around $56, $57 billion since February that he forgot about student loan debt. Well, we didn't forget. We knew those payments were coming due and we were dreading them. And we have reason to, as we've been saying all along. And it's not because we just don't want to pay back the original loan. It's that we can't afford the payments that those loans have ballooned into. Business Insider reports that an employee of a small student loan company in Iowa who was there when the Department of Education created the income-based repayment program in 2007, told Insider that the program was flawed at the outset. The employee said that the implementation of this plan was never the problem. It was a bad program from the very beginning. Why is that? The plan allows borrowers with direct federal loans or loans through the Federal Family Education Loan Program, which are privately held, to pay them down through monthly payments fixed at a percentage of their discretionary income with forgiveness after 20 or 25 years of repayments. That's what they say. But being on a 25-year repayment plan didn't stop interest from growing because if a borrower is late in recertifying their income, the interest will capitalize, meaning it's added to the original loan balance. So future interest grows based on the higher amount leading to higher monthly payments. Because of this capitalizing interest, only 32 people have actually received loan forgiveness, even though the program has actually been around in some way or form since 1994. 
Investigations have described other major flaws with the plans like a failure of these companies to keep track of payments and onerous processes for certifying income or for applying for the programs altogether. Biden's education department recently indicated that it wants to prevent interest capitalization whenever possible. Notice how they didn't say they want to eliminate it entirely. While that could help borrowers starting in 2023, those who've been in repayment for decades, well, will continue to contend with those higher monthly payments, which is why the debt must be canceled entirely, completely and out right. Lawmakers will again kick the can down the road with another extension, which is honestly unavoidable since the Democrats would be putting the final nail in their already half-closed political coffin if they allow the payments to resume before the midterm elections. But any real change in the exploitative student loan industry that relieves the unbearable burden of mounting debt that so many are under, it's not coming for most of those people anytime soon. And you know it's bad when an industry insider makes the situation plain as day. The employee of the student loan servicer said, quote, I think the government has a responsibility to these people because we've done this to Gen Xers and millennials. But now we're getting a lot of Gen Z on there in these programs, she said. And this is all these people who are getting trapped in this debt because they were told they were making the smart and the fiscally responsible decision to go on the income-based repayment plan and have a payment that matched their income, and all it's done is just lead to massive debt. Now might be a good time to stop throwing away all that money at Ukraine and just cancel all this student loan debt, especially since restarting those payments as this country is entering into a recession would be absolutely disastrous. Now might be also a good time for Biden to rethink his little proposal to include $13 billion in his Safer Streets America plan or whatever it's called called to help communities hire and train 100,000 additional police officers over five years. This sounds like the crime bill all over again. Be a good idea not to do that. It'd be great for Biden to stop funding war to stop funding killer cops, it would be great if he just canceled the doggone student loan debt. Follow Luke My Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Kirby Joseph, a longtime police brutality, mass incarceration and community organizer in Brooklyn, New York, with the Answer Coalition and SOS coordinator with the Audrey Lord Project. Kirby, thanks so much for coming on with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Kirby, here recently, a New York City correction officer named Dion Middleton was off duty when he shot and killed 18-year-old Raymond Chalusant near the intersection of the Cross Bronx Expressway and Morris Avenue. Um, And I was hoping you could sort of break down uh, what happened here in this case. And what do we know so far about this shooting? 
Raymond was with his friends playing with a toy gun. The thing that, uh, toy water gun, um, the thing that folks should understand is that this was not a gun where it's a toy that looked like a weapon, you know, that looked like a real gun. This was a actual water gun that looked like a water gun um, that couldn't be mistaken for anything other than a toy. Um, Dion Middleton's side of the story is saying that he felt as if Raymond was threatening his life with a water gun. And instead of asking him questions and while he's off duty, meaning he could have easily driven away if he felt so threatened and within his vehicle, he took his gun that he had on his person and shot Raymond point blank um, in the face execution style. Um, left the scene, did not call for any assistance for Raymond, knowing that he executed him, and actually clocked into work. Wow. Um, a few days ago, he was charged um, for the shooting, and we'll see what happens from there. But this is another case of a young person, an 18-year-old, playing in his own neighborhood and being killed by agents of the state. And a couple of things that you just explained about this uh, horrific case, yet another one, uh, raise questions. Obviously, the fact that, you know, police are, are investigating or exploring whether a toy weapon uh, that, you know, you 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 pointed out um, uh, the young man uh, had had a role in the killing. And that's really weird to me because it seems to me that uh, New York State, uh, basically, did they not just declare through the Supreme Court decision uh, overturning New York's concealed carry uh, law that anyone can openly carry uh, uh, guns in the state? So even if this were a real gun, what Why would that uh, pose a threat, just someone carrying a weapon? And the fact that you point out that this was a toy gun that was obviously, quite obviously, upon looking at it, a toy gun. Why would that be considered having any role in the killing? And the fact that this corrections officer uh, was off duty and then clocked back into work after he shot someone in the face, mm-hmm. in 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 response to, I I guess whatever he he said about maybe he feared for his life, but but how does one engage in an activity where you shoot someone, and you don't, uh, you know, the police don't take a statement from you, they have to go find you at work. This this really, it, I I would like to say Kirby that it that it smells bad but but this really does follow the typical response uh that the police uh uh have when there is a quote unquote officer involved shooting yeah um it's easy to have that mentality when you look at black and brown people as criminals in the first place um as enemies to you in the first place um and it's something that we've seen um with Tamir Rice 12 years old killed in a playground it's something that we've seen with Nicholas Hayward Jr. Um, I don't know if y'all remember having, you know, Donna Hayward, Nicholas Hayward Sr.'s part, um, widow and partner of over, you know, 20 plus years talking about her stepson's struggle. Um, a young man, 14 years old, who was playing in his building and a police officer 
killed him doing a, a legal vertical patrol in 1994. Even as young people, um, because of white supremacy, because of the training um, that correctional officers, that police officers um, receive, and because their natural biases and anti-blackness is allowed within their field, is encouraged within their field, um, is encouraged as a safety precaution within their field, to look at people in our communities during a heat wave. I mean, in New York right now, it was 90 five close to 100 degrees every day for a week. I mean, that's a whole nother interview <laughs> about environmental justice um, and where we're at. But community members were out spraying each other with water, playing with hydrants. He was doing the same thing. He was 18 years old. Um, but he, unfortunately, being a person of color, being a person of color who was male, was automatically looked at uh, perpetuator of violence, even though the person who did the violence was Dion Middleton. Yeah, and it, it just seems, Kirby, like this is indicative of how the NYPD operate in uh, uh, New York City and certainly within uh, uh, neighborhoods uh, and boroughs like the Bronx, which deals with serious issues of, of poverty and things like that. And so for me, it's sort of a reminder of uh, the class character of policing to where, you know, in a place like the Bronx, you can get killed for having a toy gun. That's of no, no threat to anyone. But we don't hear about these uh, kinds of police uh, uh, violence uh, in the other more affluent areas of the city. No, and and a lot of cases of police violence that happens every 28 hours within our country, um, someone is killed. Within New York City, the NYPD have already killed 27 people this year. Within Rikers, correctional officers are responsible for the death of 11 inmates already this year. And these are not stories that make the news, right? People don't know that these things are happening. Um, and we know mainstream media, that's, that's not like by any means necessary, right, are further perpetuating the stereotypes and anti-blackness that police officers and correctional officers followed on their day-to-day shifts, right? Um, and we also have to remember the history of the police. Modern-day police came from slave catchers, right, from the Deep South, where white Klansmen and, and white, quote-unquote, good Samaritans were doing work of bringing slaves back to their masters. Right. Um, and that is the history and, and ideology that carries on within every police department within this country. But the NYPD is one of the worst rated police departments and most funded. And, you know, this uh, uh, corrections officer, specifically uh, Middleton, uh, who left the scene without reporting the shooting, I, I just cannot get over that part. Um, it was through his lawyer later uh, that we learned that or that he learned that his bullet had hit Raymond uh, Lachalicent, uh, uh, killing him. But here's the thing. Middleton is uh, or was a firearms instructor for New York's correction department. So so again, I can't help but go back to how does a cop who is also a firearms instructor not know the difference between a real gun and a toy gun? That right there makes no sense. But also in his statement, the police said that uh, Middleton had not seen he, in his own statement, he said he had not seen anyone holding a weapon and that he had not heard any shots. 
So how how does he end up shooting this young man in the face over not seeing a weapon and not hearing any shots? What was he afraid of? Oh, and by the way, he earned six figures last year, including overtime pay. All of this, this is another, yeah, this is yet another case of how just completely corrupt and rotten the system of policing in every aspect is to the core. And and I think it's worth noting, Kirby, that in this instance, Middleton has been suspended, not with pay. He has been suspended without pay um, from the city's correction department. I mean, what is the uh, organization mobilization looking like on the ground uh, toward uh, any kind of better effort by the I hate to use the word reform, but but any type of better effort for the corrections department in New York City to address any of the issues that Middleton's actions represent? A lot of folks, are, and also just before I answer that, one of the things that in your in your summary that I thought about was just that it shows the intent to commit violence. The fact that he shot without caring about who could get hit, knowing what the consequences of firing any firearm would be, and just so folks know, a correctional officer's firearm, just like an NYPD officer's firearm, is not like a regular gun. It takes a lot of pressure to pull the trigger. It takes a lot for it to discharge, meaning every time someone pulls that trigger, they have the intent to use it. So he had every intent to use that that weapon on somebody or in that community. On the ground right now, there's still conversations that are happening about defunding the NYPD. There's a lot of conversations about community safety and community de-escalation. One of the things that's very real about um, Eric Adams, former police officer who is now the mayor of New York City, um, who actually told New Yorkers that they have no right to film his officers while they are at work, right? Even if they're harassing a community member or not. Right, um, has fortified the NYPD budget of $11.2 billion. The NYPD actually received the most money out of any sector within New York City, public services. More than teachers, more than transportation, more than housing, more than social programs, more than youth job placement. And there's huge conversations happening about defunding the police. Um, this was a point that um, Kathy Rojas, who was run for mayor um, in the Party for Social and Liberation, was really pushing and amplifying about cutting half their budget, not $1 billion, <laughs> 5 to $6 billion. Because if comrades don't know, a lot of the NYPD budget has a use of fringe expenses, meaning NYPD retirement and settlement. Um, there's also conversations happening about education around this. What does this mean, right? What does it mean when a CEO causes this level of violence in a community? How is there, are they connected to the NYPD? What is the state? Who are agents of the state? Um, these are bringing massive conversations. We have not seen a huge reaction like George Floyd, and this is something that um, for even Jalen Walker we didn't see. But what we've seen on the ground is a big sense of rapid response. People going out to the community, trying to get in contact with the family, 
talking to community members to ask them what they saw and what they seen and what they have been impacted with through police and state violence. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned, of course, a New York City Mayor Eric Adams, uh, Kirby himself, uh, a former officer with uh, uh, the force. And and I feel like even though uh, Adams is a Democrat and things like that, it's just clear that, you know, it's going to take that that very kind of uh, outside force um, that, 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 you know, isn't beholden to the whims of the Democratic Party and certainly not the Republicans and things like this, which is why those conversations that you were saying uh, were happening, I think are are so important because at the end of the day, Eric Adams uh, doesn't have to worry about being faced with this kind of violence. But, you know, for a lot of people in New York City, it's a daily reality. Yeah. And in fact, Eric Adams blames victims of police and state violence for their violence and rewards perpetuators with funding and impunity. And I think that also went into Dion Middleton, what you were talking about, Jackie, Um, with his intention is knowing that he can probably get away with it because that's what we've seen. While there are major cases that reach our, our cell phones in the news or our TV screens, there's plenty of others that don't. There's people that get away with profiling, with stopping, frisking, harassing and brutalizing our community members. And those are police officers. Those are the, correctional officers that hold them in cells. Those are the judges that sentenced them. There was a young man who was sentenced to 30 years because he was around a police officer who was shot by another police officer. So we know for a fact that those in law enforcement, whether it be a judge, whether it be police officers or correctional officers, don't have our intention. And we know for a fact that the mayor doesn't either. That's why building a grassroots working class movement against police brutality is always and foremost the key. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Kirby, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the Day of National Rebellion inside Cuba. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Arnold August, a Montreal-based author of three books on U.S.-Cuba-Latin America relations. He is an award-winning journalist, publishes in English, Spanish, and French on several continents, collaborates with Telesor, Cuban TV, and Press TV Iran, is a contributing editor for the Canada Files, and a member of the International Manifesto Group. Arnold, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here once again. It's a pleasure to have you back with us, Arnold. And, of course, on this day, July 26th, 1953, uh, there were assaults on the Moncana and Cespedes barracks that uh, became very important events in the development of the Cuban Revolution. And I think particularly at this point in Cuba's history, with everything that uh, it's still going through, what it's been able to achieve, and what it still struggles with, I feel like it's important 
important to really have a look back on the significance of this day and why it's important uh, for Cuba at this juncture? Well, I think the first thing to take into account is what was the situation way back in July 1956 in order to see the significance of the move taken by Fidel Castro and his followers. After the uh, March 1952 violent coup d'etat carried out by the Batista forces with the full support of the U.S., of course, uh, the political forces in Cuba at the time were looking for a way out. And it was only Fidel Castro and the party with which he was active uh, at that time, the known as the Orthodox Party, it's like a sort of a social democratic revolutionary party, they came to the conclusion that the only way forward was armed struggle and nothing less. This went to, uh, against the grain of some of the other political parties in Cuba at the time. For example, the Communist Party of Cuba, it was known uh, otherwise at that time, but that party was still following the path of elections as a possibility to uh, unseat the uh, uh, Batista regime. So Fidel Castro uh, thought of something different. What we need is armed struggle. Now, it was important to point out that uh, Fidel Castro, one of the main features of his political thinking, that Gabriel Marquez pointed out that Fidel Castro is the uh, epitome of anti-dogmatism. That is, while being able to uh, completely follow, imbibe, take into account revolutionary thinking, whether it's Jose Marti from Cuba or Marx or Engels, with which he was somewhat familiar at that time. He was able to forge something new that would go against the uh, mainstream political opposition uh, content at that time, and that was armed struggle. Now, it's important to take into account, once a decision was made to attack the Moncada barracks, uh, those forces who initially, to say the least, were very reluctant to uh, follow the position of taking up arms, did in fact rally to the cause of Fidel Castro and the July 26 movement. So that uh, uh, made it the success of it heading into the attack. Now, the attack itself actually failed. There were several uh, logistic problems. The, the basic goal, John, was for uh, to capture the uh, barracks and to take all of the weapons that were badly needed for the ongoing or beginning of the armed struggle in the eastern part of Cuba. Now, it failed for various logistic reasons or whatever. And the fact was that many of those uh, people who took up arms against the Moncada were, were, were injured. Uh, many were actually uh, captured by the Batista forces and executed within the barracks, but their bodies were lately thrown over the front of the barracks to give the impression that they were executed in the course of the battle, which was not the case. They were executed, others managed to escape, but later were captured, and amongst those who escaped but later captured was a man called Fidel Castro. Now, here's 
where it becomes very interesting to get at you know the, the significance of that Moncada gestures that uh, Fidel Castro was scheduled to go to to trial uh, uh, as a result of his uh, participation in the attack against Moncada. Now he was in solitary confinement in jail at the time, in very, very difficult conditions. Yet he put together, he wrote painstakingly his own defense. Remember, he was a lawyer as well as a very active revolutionary political person. So he wrote his whole defense. Now, when the guards found out that he was writing this defense, they, uh, uh, they uh, arrived in his cell and they tore up the whole thing. But Fidel Castro, I guess you want to say this is one of his characteristics, 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 he actually reconstructed the defense in his mind and uh, learned it by heart. So by the time he went to the uh, trial, face trial, he had it, he had it all in front of him and he was able to complete it successfully. Now that defense, uh, known uh, later to be known as uh, uh, History Will Absolve Me, was actually clandestinely printed by the other members of that movement uh, in the East and even in, in the West in Havana, and thousands and thousands of copies of his defense, History Will Absolve Me, were distributed all across Cuba and became sort of the official uh, clandestine political position of the July 26 movement, which was based on the need for armed struggle against a U.S.-backed uh, Batista regime, as well as a full program, for example, doing away with large landholders, giving land to the landless, uh, supporting the struggles of the working class in the cities, etc. And it became the program with, with for which they fought. And the next step, of course, uh, the important point was that uh, while uh, Fidel Castro was in jail, there was so much uh, uh, support for his activity. And those of his other comrades, such as Raul Castro, Che Guevara, who also were in prison, they actually succeeded in forcing Batista to give amnesty to them and they uh, came out of prison. Of course, Bat Batista probably had in mind some electoral advantages he may have by freeing these people who've become, who had become heroes in Cuba. And no, no longer when they were freed did they start organized seriously for another attempt. This one starting from Mexico, organizing to have a, uh, a, a boat, leaving Mexico with uh, several hundred uh, fighters, now called the July 26 movement, to land in eastern Cuba in order to start uh, the armed uprising that eventually will lead. They landed in, in uh, the end of 1956. So within a couple of years, between November uh, to uh, November uh, of that year, 1956, till January 1st, 1959, that is quite a short period of time, right? I mean, but they actually succeeded moving from their base 
in the rural areas in eastern Cuba, slowly moving westward to the other cities, to the countryside, and finally liberated the whole country. Just keep in mind, while they were fighting, the Batista forces, backed by the U.S., were using B-52 bombers, all kinds of uh, military equipment against this very small ragtag guerrilla army. But because of the, I would say, the content of the uh, ma their manifesto, uh, of the group that history will absolve me. That whole program won the backing of millions of Cubans all across the island, and the inevitable took place. The Batista regime folded and was no longer able to uh, uh, operate and eventually just fled out of the country. And so January 1st, 1959, Fidel Castro was able to declare in a public meeting in Santiago de Cuba, that the revolution has been won. But he also said this was an important victory, but in the future, things are bound to be very difficult. And starting in uh, January 1st in Santiago de Cuba, the July 26th movement moved westward, all the way westward until they reach Havana on January 8th, 1958. That sort of culminating that uh, struggle that took place from the Sierra Maestra, the landing of the Gamma. But I also, I also would say, I agree with what the Cubans say, that the real beginning of the Cuban Revolution was not the um, the. Uh, First, uh, was not the attack uh, on the uh, Moncada Barris uh, on July 26, but the real important initial stage of that revolution was way back in 1898, when a wealthy landowner, Manuel de Cespedes, in 1886, he left his home and went to the Bell which normally is used to ring very loudly, calling the slaves to work on his plantation. But on that day, October 10th, 1968, historical, he rang the bell, yes, but he called on the slaves to join with him and others of Spanish origin, but well entrenched in Cuba, to work together in order to overthrow the Spanish colonial domination, and with it, the very serious economic uh, inequalities and also the slave system. So the Cubans rightly say that was the beginning of the revolution. It was later defeated 1898 temporarily when the United States, in its typical way, uh, Sean, I'm sure you'll agree, they, they uh, took over as Cuba was about to defeat the Spanish in 1898. The uh, United States uh, was able to uh, interfere, take over that struggle, co-opt that struggle, and rather than Cuba becoming the victor against Spain, it was the United States that became the victorious force and recolonized Cuba from that time on, and that lasted in one form or another till January 1st, 1959. That is why Fidel and the leadership say that the, the, the January 1st, 1959 revolution is a continuation 
of the 1868 revolution. And I think this is a, I think this is an accurate assessment of the evolution of the uh, Cuban revolution and the key aspects of the very daring Moncada uh, attack on the uh, on that garrison led by Fidel Castro and the July 26th movement. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Arnold, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having another edition of our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garoppa, the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back with you. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, uh, it's recently been reported in Forbes about how the S- the FBI actually forced uh, a suspect to unlock uh, an encrypted app by the name of Wicker uh, with their face. Uh, help us understand uh, uh, what's happening in this situation and how it was possible for the FBI to do this. Yeah, certainly. This uh, comes down to a very particular reading of Fifth Fifth Amendment law. Um, So police, it's generally understood that police under the Fifth Amendment cannot force you to type in a password to unlock your phone or computer or things like that. that. That is testifying against yourself. It's something that you know and cannot be compelled to give up. What has been generally untested in the courts, though, has been the use of biometrics and whether or not law enforcement can force you to use your thumbprint or your face, as many people do, to unlock your phones. We know that in the past, the FBI has used uh, forced people, compelled them to use their face to unlock an iPhone with face ID turned on. But this is the first case where they've actually done so with an app. So, you know, you can lock your phone with a uh, with your face or thumbprint, but then you can separately lock an app with the same mechanism. Uh, and in many cases, they let you also just use a passcode instead of uh, a you know, instead of biometrics. And so that's where the difference comes into play here is that this is, as far as we are aware, the first time that an app has been unlocked by the FBI forcing somebody to use biometrics to do so. And this is why it's so important to consider when you're setting up your phone and you're locking down your apps and securing things, you know, are you using a a long passcode? Or are you using, you know, the biometrics, the face, the fingerprint, things like that to unlock your phone? Because, uh, you know, again, the police cannot compel you to testify against yourself to give up your password. But they can, and it, this has not been tested yet in uh, most in, in the Supreme Court, they can apparently force you for now to use your face or thumbprint. Now, this is going to have to go further up. It has been 
it's gotten various uh, results in different district courts around the country. Some courts have said uh, that law enforcement can engage in this kind of behavior. Some courts have said they can't. It's going to have to go to the Supreme Court. And that means that we're going to have a struggle because we know how this Supreme Court has tr- has treated privacy. Let's not forget that, you know, Roe uh, and other rulings were based on, you know, a right to privacy. Um, and we see how the Supreme Court has treated people's rights, including that to privacy. So it's going to be a, a big struggle uh, if and when a case like this gets to the Supreme Court, in order that we have to fight that fight in order to protect our rights, to not be forced to incriminate ourselves just because we're using our face instead of a password. Yeah, and, you know, uh, a judge in two cases in uh, California and Idaho, or rather two judges, ruled that law enforcement couldn't force the owners of uh, phones to use their faces to unlock them. But the Justice Department keeps using uh, uh, this quirk in the law to do this, to carry out these kinds of searches. And, And they did it. They continue to do it, rather, by changing the language in their own search warrants. And yes, the Biden administration is still doing that. What? How did they do this? What language did they use uh, to, to justify them continuing to do this, even though two judges in California said that, you know, biometric data is testimonial? Yeah, what they've been doing, they have been using different types of search engines. They have said that they want um, that they're in a couple cases, actually, that are unrelated to this situation in Forbes. They have actually come out and said that the actual warrant is for biometric information which then actually lets them come through and force you to unlock your phone. And I think with all of these cases, right, the the details are important to pay attention to, but without losing track of the the bigger picture, right? They're going to use whatever kind of workarounds or legal loopholes they can try to find until there is a very clear movement that says, you know, socially, like, this is not going to be acceptable. You can try any kind of warrant you want. You can try whatever loopholes you want to try to find. You can talk about biometrics rather than the phone itself. Uh, and, it's, you know, that's still not going to stand. And that's really the kind of attention that you know, we need to be paying, uh, you know, to these kinds kinds of cases. Yeah, definitely. And switching gears a little bit, Chris, so there's also this issue in Chicago about a federal lawsuit that was filed around Chicago police uh, misusing some gunshot detection technology. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, what's happening in this case and uh, what is the issue with this uh, shot spotter tech? Certainly. So shot spotter are these uh, microphones, these devices that get placed uh, on streets. They usually go up on utility poles or however the city installs them. Um, Chicago is one of the leading uh, users of shot spotter, but it is in many, many other locations, uh, including right here where I am in Connecticut and New Haven. Uh, and what happens when there's something that sounds like a gunshot is that the shot spotter activates and it kind of analyzes that audio and passes that information back over to police. Well, that's the way they say it's supposed to work. We have learned in the past that, in fact, they can manually uh, override or signal 
uh, a an alarm to the police. And that's been uh, discovered through other lawsuits involving police and shot spotter devices. We know, also know that the Chicago police and others have asked shot spotter to uh, basically fake information <laughs> and falsify records in order to help them try to identify people um, in murder cases or shooting cases. And so in this case, we have the man uh, named Michael Williams. Uh, he was charged in 2020 with murder for shooting another man. He spent a year in jail. Uh, and then he was released because the judge said that the prosecutors just didn't have enough evidence uh, to to charge him and keep him locked up. And a lot of this evidence came from uh, the shot spotter system that the police responded to an alert from shot spotter and said, you know, they found him in the area and decided that he was the one who was guilty because he had been in the area, uh, arrested him, charged him. And, you know, he spent a year locked up and still, you know, deals with things like medical issues, legal bills and things like that. So just because he is not in jail right now, you know, this has still really damaged his, you know, his life uh, as an older man as well. And so, you know, ShotSpotter is not actually part of the lawsuit uh, against Chicago, but uh, it's not a named plaintiff, I should say, in the lawsuit. But it is part of this discussion because the evidence the police used came from the shot spotter device and warning system that they have integrated. So when we go back to it, right, shot spotter is actually it's a microphone with some other audio processing techniques that's hooked up to the police network. And a microphone can obviously listen to anything that is going on around it. So if there are shots fired, or let's say a car backfires, and this happens, a car backfires, and it sounds like a gunshot, shot spotter is going to start listening immediately. And it's going to not, it doesn't filter out if you're just having a conversation nearby. It can pick that up as well record that and send that out to police or to the shot spotter uh, vendor as well. So there's a number of, of major concerns around privacy with these devices. Uh, and I, I think we need to see cities around the country stop using them and, in fact, stop spending millions and millions of dollars. These are not cheap to install or maintain, and that is by design. We, of course, are seeing the Biden administration talking about spending more and more money on policing every day. This has been in the news certainly last night and this morning. And part of that is the it's not just the cops on the ground. It is the weapons and the surveillance technology that uh, the police continue to use in order to to occupy and oppress neighborhoods. Yeah, and you know, when we're talking about the the intended use of of shot spotter, uh, the lawsuit actually says that investigating officers put blind faith in shot spotter evidence that they knew or should have known was unreliable, and noted that uh, investigators used shot spotter material in a way that went beyond its intended use, quoting a disclaimer in one document that was related to Williams's case that says the investigative lead summary should only be used for initial investigative purposes. So, I mean, this technology seems to come with a disclaimer that says you shouldn't use this shot spotter, this technology that we're giving you to allegedly, uh, you know, pinpoint uh, gunshots because, 
it's not that reliable. We know that. So you, you should only use it for initial investigative purposes, not to actual charge people with crimes. And, and I mean, I think that's kind of an obvious admission of guilt by the company that they know that their product really is not worth the money that they put into it. And that's being put into it to continue to use it against so-called fighting crime, Chris. Yeah, certainly. And it's a very similar situation with Amazon's uh, recognition, facial recognition system, where they explicitly said, you know, by default, it comes with something like, uh, you know, it'll return results with an 85% or so approval rating. I don't remember the exact number, but it certainly was not 100%. And they, they said, you know, just use this as an investigative tool. Don't rely on this to say, you know, this is your suspect. This is the person who you're looking at in this video. Uh, But of course, police aren't heeding those warnings. Uh, They're saying, well, we spent all this money on this tool. We have a tool that's going to make our jobs, you know, easier, so to say. And so we're going to get this information from ShotSpotter. We're going to get it from a facial recognition tool. And we're just going to go out and use that information uh, and, you know, assume that the tool is correct because it is much easier that way. We're going to lock somebody up. People are going to love us because we are, you know, supposedly solving crime. Of course, we know police do not prevent crime. They love to come out after the fact. Um, And these tools actually make things more dangerous for people who have committed no crime, who just may be in a certain area. Yeah. And Chris, and and just Thinking and talking about how, you know, technology and policing uh, have an increasingly cozy relationship. I mean, haven't we seen innovation with like those uh, robotic uh, dog like uh, creations that we've been seeing developed over the years? Um, I feel like we've been seeing those being weaponized and things like that. And I just feel like the implications of things like that are are pretty uh, frightening and that uh, it just seems that whenever we see these uh, this interplay, if you will, between law enforcement attack in this way, it never spells out anything good for the masses of poor working and oppressed people. No, it certainly, certainly doesn't, because if we look at the technology, I think a lot of these technologies could be, you know, useful in some way if you break them down into their, uh, you know, their component pieces. But yeah, when you're creating a robot that looks like a dog and then has a uh, machine gun strapped to its back that can just fire at will, I mean, that's not a good use of technology for anyone who isn't concerned about, you know, mass casualties and just causing as much death and destruction as possible. This video that you're referring to, Sean, that was kind of circulating around the internet last week, of course, did show exactly that. It's a robot that looks like a dog. I I hate saying robot dogs because they're not dogs. They are robotic killing machines, in fact. And yeah, I mean, this is something that companies like Boston Dynamics and others who are defense contractors have been working on for quite some time. And they, they make them look like dogs, particularly, you know, to make us to, to disarm us uh, in a sense when we're looking at it in on that video, right? It can go up the stairs, it can come downstairs, run across a field just like your pet. But no, these are robotic killing machines. They are not animals. And we need to really assess you know, these autonomous weapons, right? Because the other part of it is the autonomous aspect of, you know, these, of these killer robots. They might be like drones you know, flown and monitored from miles or hundreds of miles away, or in the case of the military, thousands of miles away. But the developments that have continued to be, to be made really signal that the 
defense companies and the Pentagon want these systems to be fully autonomous, to be able to make decisions on their own on the battlefield. And they consider the battlefield not just a foreign war, but also our cities. The Pentagon has been preparing and constantly prepares for systems where or situations where there is domestic unrest. And they have said explicitly that local law enforcement could use tools like this to control unrest with lethal or less than lethal weaponry. And of course, less than lethal weaponry, as we have seen time and time again, is still damaging and can still kill. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, on the legislative front, uh, there is some movement on progressives at least trying, making an effort to pressure uh, legislators to do something about uh, antitrust bills that were introduced uh, to focus on the tech industry. What's been going on with uh, House progressives uh, trying to urge uh, Chuck Schumer to act on some uh, tech antitrust legislation? Yeah, the the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, some of their members had sent a letter to Schumer last week, uh, of course, he is the uh, the Senate minority leader, uh, basically saying we need to move on these two bills. There's the Open Markets Act, and then there's the American Innovation and Choice Act, Online Act. Uh, and these two bills do you know, somewhat different things, but ultimately they start to attack the power that social networks and big shopping platforms like Amazon have. And if we remember, you know, there were you know, many, many days and weeks of hearings on Capitol Hill about the power that these tech companies have. We saw executives from Facebook, Twitter, Apple, Amazon, Google, and others, uh, you know, up there speaking. Well, you know, I, I think we need we need some sort of legislation. I'm not a huge fan of either of these texts or these bills, particularly. And I think it's very interesting to note, uh, especially you know when you start to look at the AICO uh, that. It mentions China three times in a bill about American tech companies. And that really starts to give us a clue as to what this is actually all about. It's not necessarily about giving consumers in the United States more choice and more you know, liberty to use platforms as they see fit, although there are provisions for those kinds of things. But it's actually really, um, really aiming, particularly the ACO bill, to punish China. Um, it, it, ha- it mentions a few times phrases like, you know, a person that is controlled by the government of the People's Republic of China or the government of another foreign adversary. Whereas, you know, in that case, um, you know, you're not covered by any of the protections of this, uh, you know, of this law if you are, you know, so-called employed by a foreign adversary. I mean, it's, it's a completely anti-China bill, even though it only specifically mentions China a couple times when setting up the definitions. I think additionally, you know, it doesn't really address the fact that these companies are working in tandem with the U.S. government, uh, you know, to do data collection, data sharing, data processing. What they are, what it is saying is that, you know, data sharing with other companies and other entities, you know, maybe with that needs to be limited slightly. Um, but it's really not addressing the fact that, of course, and it can't address the fact that these companies work very closely on a daily basis with the U.S. government to do that same kind of data sharing. So, 
very closely watching these bills to see if and when they do come out, uh, you know, for hearings uh, in the full Senate uh, for a vote. Uh, not very not feeling like they're the best bills, but I, I am very curious to see what happens next with these. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know they can holler at us. <clears throat> that's wow. right, Sean, although you can't holler anymore over there. <laughs> there are plenty of ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Mr. James Early former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Mr. Early, today we've been marking the anniversary of the July 26th movement in 1953 in Cuba, uh, which, of course, saw the assaults on the uh, Cespedes and uh, Moncada barracks in an attempt to overthrow uh, uh, the brutal regime of the Fulgencio Batista government. And even though uh, uh, this day marks um, an incident of military defeat, it was also one, I think, of ultimate political victory. And I think even having a look now at all the the different issues 
that continue to face the country of Cuba under its current president, uh, Miguel Diaz Canal. And I mean, you know, we're seeing uh, new generations of young people that have uh, uh, taken up the mantle of uh, Cuba solidarity and things like this. I'm just wondering what you sort of see as the importance of the lessons of a day like today, not only uh, for Cuba, Mr. Early, but perhaps for, you know, uh, those of us who seek to be in solidarity, you know, with those struggles that are really trying to bring about a new dispensation, both in the global South and around the world? Well, I, I think any uh, really objective, honest look at Cuba, notwithstanding what one's ideological or political dispositions might be, uh, would have to deal with the fact that uh, Cuba emerged after uh, centuries of colonialism, of the killing of indigenous people, the um, forced uh, movement uh, and enslavement of African-descended people uh, to become uh, really the strategic uh, geopolitical economic um, pivot of the Caribbean, at the mouth of the Caribbean, opening up into Latin America, in which goods, including uh, human goods, uh, chattel, enslaved people, uh, were passed through and uh, then uh, sent out to other areas uh, of Latin America uh, and the Caribbean with the emergence then of the second most important uh, development of oppressed and exploited people, marginalized people uh, fighting the powers to be of their time, is then the Haitian Revolution in which uh, massive numbers of enslaved uh, African descendants uh, went into the uh, eastern part of Cuba, along with many of the slave masters, plantation owners. Um, and so the Haitian Revolution uh, of these enslaved Africans breaking open, uh, something that the French Revolution really could not envision, uh, did not envision, despite its high philosophical uh, call for uh, equality, uh, then the Cuban Revolution is that second step. Today, now, Cuba in the grips of an economic war, uh, and it's called uh, the blockade, um, uh, the embargo, as it is uh, encased in the U.S. congressional legislation, uh, economic warfare, having suffered uh, bombing attempts, uh, the attempt to kill off um, um, uh, animals in Cuba, to starve and force the population of Cuba to rebel against its own elected leaders, uh, some of whom are from the Communist Party of Cuba, uh, but many of whom are not uh, from the Communist Party. Uh, in that context, and the uh, the internal failure of the economic system admitted by the Cubans, uh, it suggests that resistance and integrity go together, self-determination and sovereignty are things to be sought and to be suffered for um, and to be brought into full view, notwithstanding what of the opposition. And I would just conclude then that somewhat long introduction to note that uh, the president, today's president of Mexico, has called for a human integrity award to be given to the Cubans. And he is by no stretch a uh, Mexican communist, or more of a social democrat, but who upholds the integrity of this resistance and this transformative nation uh, that the Cuban people and their leaders uh, have achieved uh, against their own internal uh, battles as well as the external battles of the United States 
uh, trying to overthrow uh, that country and to re-implant uh, capitalism. That's the context, I think, for us looking at July 26th forward and not just backwards. And, you know, as we're commemorating the July 26th movement, I feel like the 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 struggle for the self-determination of Cuba as a country is is ongoing in the reflection of the way the government handles uh, the expression of the self-determination of people in the country, like the way they uh, deal with ensuring that the human rights of all people in the country are taken seriously and upheld. And I, and I think the way that Cuba it, it goes about um, holding referendums on uh, changing their constitution, the way they put these issues to the people for their consultation and input is really a reflection. I, I feel like uh, a, a kind of uh, a top down or bottom up reflection of, you know, what a nation's self-determination looks like um, it, the, as it expressed and how it treats its people. And I wonder if you can explain to people how Cuba's recent uh, referendum or their upcoming referendum that they're going to hold on same-sex marriage and how they carried out that public consultation is so important in the way that Cuba exists as a nation uh, reflected in their fight for self-determination and how they're continuing to really include uh, individual and, and groups of people's struggle for self-determination and the and the the guaranteeing of their human rights within the country. I, I think you are put your uh, hands and articulation on an important political democratic architecture uh, of the Cuban revolution, the Cuban socialist revolution, of a more direct uh, engagement, a democratic engagement uh, centered around uh, the proactive uh, visions, views, critiques, recommendations uh, of citizens. Uh, however, not unlike um, other articulations or, arti or, or architectures of democracy, including that of the U.S. Constitution, that speaks uh, in high levels of humanistic aspirations and so forth, uh, contradictions do emerge between uh, what in the black community we would often say the slip between cup and lip of what's articulated and what's actually done. But the history of the Cuban Revolution has been trying to calibrate uh, democracy on uh, the basis of working class participation and working class interests, a particular a participatory democracy. It has at times been um, out of the balance, uh, the preferred balance uh, of the leadership of the Communist Party of Cuba and those who are elected to lead in local uh, provincial and, and national government and on the international scale because of the constant attack uh, of the U.S. government uh, for regime change in Cuba, which has caused at various moments a deep centralization of the execution of governance authority and governance policies, which has not always been uh, in balance then uh, with the needs and aspirations of the diversity of the citizens. Uh, however, looking over the trajectory of the 60-some-odd years of the Cuban Revolution, uh, it is a striking balance uh, towards 
uh, the aspirations and interests and articulations of working people, notwithstanding uh, times being out of balance and contradictorily so. Uh, the issue of gender, uh, male macho culture, and the dominance of women by men, which is uh, characteristic basically all over the world, and therein the significance of the struggle uh, for women's uh, rights, not just to have equality, uh, but to actually uh, be at the leadership front in conceptualizing and implementing and evaluating uh, the stewardship of equality, the outcomes of equality, as well as the question of race, which has been a thorny issue within the context of the 60-some ideas of the Cuban Revolution, which is now uh, back uh, at the fulcrum of discussions with the discussion of women and the control of women's bodies by themselves, uh, as well as uh, same-sex marriage, which, as you note, has gone as most policy issues in Cuba go to literally thousands of meetings of discussions of citizens across the island. Now, that's inconceivable in some ways uh, for people here in the United States, the way that we're socialized, and in the scale of 300 and some odd million people, when you compare that to Cuba with about 11 million people, um, which is a graspable scale of interaction between the diversity of citizens uh, and their elected leaders. But it is not um, to be dismissed. Uh, you see that in the case of Mexico, with its social uh, democratic governance um, under Obrador, uh, he is holding weekly meetings with citizens, which are not orchestrated in the way that the White House press interviews are orchestrated. Uh, as you see it in the movement of Diaz Canales, the president of Cuba, who is weekly meeting. Uh, not only with local party officials across the country, but meeting with citizens' organizations across the country and talking about their own internal failures and errors in the context of their self-determined strength and putting that in then the broader context of the continuous destabilization factor of the world's greatest military power just 90 miles away, that is the United States of America. So in looking at Cuba beyond ideology, but in the practical consequences of how it brings this ideology and philosophy to deal with the daily lives of citizens driven by a collaboration with them. Uh, it is a country to be acknowledged uh, in many, many ways, as we know, in culture and healthcare and education, all noted by the United Nations. The Cubans don't have to blow their own horns. Even those who are opposed to Cuban socialism are the way that they handle their democracy, um, the earnest people in that opposition admit that Cuba is some a country to be upheld for its integrity and its self-determination, and one that if we could actually get the United States of America to operate in this overworn framework, the protocols of international relations, uh, honestly, uh, Cuba would thrive even more. And we would benefit, that is, around the world even more than we benefit now from, uh, in case in point, uh, the health care and the COVID uh, vaccines that they provide to the entire world. 
Yeah, and you know, there's a couple of things that you mentioned, Mr. Early, when talking about that, you know, this uh, uh, same-sex marriage issue and then how that whole referendum process works. I mean, you're right that that sort of thing uh, is just such a foreign concept to us in the United States, and not only in terms of a democratic process, but also just in terms of what we're told actually happens in uh, uh, Cuba, because, you know, we're, we're sort of propagandized to believe that, you know, uh, everything— uh, in Cuba is undemocratic. Nothing is actually put to uh, the people to decide or discuss or to analyze. It's all a kind of, you know, unilateral order uh, that comes down from uh, the communist regime. But I feel like we miss out on so much when we uh, uh, imbibe on so much of this misinformation all the time while uh, thinking that we're being informed. And also that honesty that you spoke to about what worked and what hasn't out of a a sincere desire for things to actually grow and develop, I think is another thing uh, of many probably that's really missing from the political ethos in the United States where, you know, American exceptionalism actually completely rejects uh, that kind of uh, brutal honesty because, you know, the whole goal of the political project is not for the development of a stronger democracy, you know, with uh, any of their pronouncements to the contrary, but in truth, it's about protecting uh, the profits of uh, a wealthy few by the exploitation of the many. And so I just think it's important to note that, you know, there's a reason why we're so misinformed here in the U.S. about what happens in Cuba about what happens, you know, in, in Venezuela or Nicaragua, which just, you know, marked uh, there, I believe, the 43rd year anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution and all these sorts of things. But in reality, Mr. Early, although the U.S. likes to uphold itself as a, um, a, a paragon of democracy and things like that, I think in truth, this kind of imperial hubris uh, puts blinders on in a way when we talk about consciousness to where people in this country think that only the U.S. has anything of value to offer in that way. And therefore, the lessons from the struggles of people all around the globe uh, don't even seem to enter the equation. No, I, I think you're, you, you, you accurately described the situation. And I would add that it's a detriment to the very citizens of the United States across the ideological and political spectrum. I mean, let's just outline quickly uh, the case of um, an unelected judiciary, which dictates the control, women's control of their lives. It's basically a formalized uh, second-class citizenship, uh, somewhat analogous, but one needs to be careful in the analogy of the constitutional institutionalization of enslaving um, African peoples and the massacre of indigenous people. Uh, that is what this judiciary is doing now. A paralyzed uh, legislative body, uh, which despite the majority of the citizens voting for progressive social democracy kinds of policies, uh, universal health care, uh, minimum wage, uh, environmental change, clean water, um, that the Democratic Party uh, is talking about return to normal order of the old Republican Democratic contestation for who would uh, rule the roots of keeping neoliberal capitalism uh, stable and trading on uh, the marginalization and the oppression and exploitation of uh, majority uh, communities like African Americans, Latinos, uh, poor working class white uh, people, uh, LGBTQT communities. 
uh, et cetera, uh, trading uh, on their votes, uh, basically, uh, to keep either party in control. Or what's going on in North Carolina right now, and with the Democratic Party status quo, is uh, standing up against Green Party candidates. Uh, the vulgarity of the Biden-Harris administration with the Saudi Arabians, uh, as they uh, failed to initiate diplomatic initiatives to deal with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, but are looking, yeah, can we go down to the last Ukrainian alive uh, rather than deal with diplomacy? And, and, and so this is even by way of MSNBC, uh, CBS, NBC, et cetera, standards, a failing and failed democracy in many, many ways. So we have to be really cautious in using our socialized object to look at a place like Cuba. But at the same time, I think we need to speak to progressives and socialists in the United States, who, in my view, um, have too often failed to draw out the complexities of the negotiation for power within the Cuban socialist revolution. And we often idealize it and uh, project it as a, a potential panacea or paradise only if it were uh, to be able to operate in the absence of the U.S. Uh, economic war embargo and regime change. Uh, the Cubans are refreshing in that light uh, of actually dealing with their own internal deficiencies, both in from the vantage point of ideology and politics and economics. There's a healthy debate among a new generation of young Cubans, some in the Communist Party, some outside the Communist Party, who are patriots who want to improve the gains, the extraordinary gains of the Cuban Revolution, uh, but who bring out their earnest critiques even while they fight against imperialism. And therein, for citizens in the United States, uh, whoever they are, if they're earnest, who simply want to see for themselves, then we have to take up this democratic battle for our right to travel and to go and to see and engage Cubans on our own diverse terms. And the Cubans are very open uh, to that. They receive thousands and thousands of visitors from the United States every year. There are legal ways of going to Cuba and from all around the world. And so that they are embraced by all of the countries, the CARICOM, the Anglo-Afro uh, countries, dominant uh, countries within the Caribbean, uh, within the community of Caribbean and Latin American nations who call for getting rid of this embargo, uh, for dealing respectfully towards mutual benefit uh, with Cuba, uh, and to uh, pursue proper channels where there are a deep ideological and political divide out of respect and security, not as a rogue nation as the United States has come. So I, I think we, on all fronts, both the everyday citizen in the United States as well as self-avowed progressives and socialists, have a lot of work to do uh, to protect our own rights to engage the Cubans and to open up then a more honest uh, exchange and look of what we might do together and what is useful uh, for the people who are the stewards of governance uh, to debate about from the vantage point of the interests of citizens in both countries. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lubman continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And uh, Mr. Early, uh, a moment ago, uh, we were talking about uh, how the concept of democracy, like a real uh, people's participatory democracy, is so crucial to the uh, revolutionary process inside Cuba. And you also made note of, you know, some of the undemocratic uh, elements within U.S. society in terms of how we just saw this overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade from the Supreme Court, uh, a body of unelected uh, judges who serve for a lifetime or until they're, you know, good and ready to leave, basically. And you also note how some uh, some other uh, basic democratic rights like voting and things like that are un- under threat as well, uh, while here in a country that sees itself as, you know, the best arbiter of uh, democracy and human rights and things like that um, on the world stage. But I feel like conditions are such as people continue to, I think, realize more and more um, just how undemocratic a lot of the elements of the United States are. I think it just sort of um, inflames the the kind of crisis moment that we're in right now in this country. And while I think that um, it creates uh, a very good opportunity potentially for organizers in terms of um, building the movement, it, it does seem like we're in a time that, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, frankly, lies about this country and the society that we're all told our whole lives uh, are just being exposed, you know, for uh, the falsehoods uh, that they are, and uh, that in truth, this you know, uh, Western liberal uh, capitalist democracy that we live under, that we've been told is um, the greatest system there ever was, in reality, is the source of so many, if not all, of the uh, pressing issues that we could point to, both in this country and outside of it. And so, as such, Mr. Early, it seems that this sort of shows the real connection between uh, domestic struggles and those uh, issues that are. Connected to uh, uh, imperialism as not only emerging for the same system, but being a benefit of the same class. And as such, we have to sort of address ourselves with that class aspect of it if we're going to uh, really see these things resolved. Well, the practical uh, uh, contradictions of the uh, highfalutin articulation of U.S. democracy and its actual practice and the results in the immiseration of people's lives, not just the most marginalized, oppressed, and exploited groupings, uh, but also striking uh, the allied middle class uh, and even causing uh, concern and frustration among the most elite sectors because of the emergence of authoritarianism and the uh, inability to be to rely and be predictable on some pattern. Of fascists uh, such as uh, Donald Trump and of those who uphold Trumpism and innovate on that uh, fascist, autocratic, uh, racist, homophobic, uh, sexist, uh, uh, economic elite uh, orientation and alignment with the most reactionary uh, elements of, of international governance. Those contradictions are now so intense 
that even the status quo is talking about the failure of U.S. democracy, the failure of its economic uh, system, uh, the second-class inculcation of women uh, uh, who don't have the rights over their own bodies, um, and obviously the fundamental um, issue in the founding of the economics of this republic uh, of uh, uh, racialized uh, economics and cultural and social policies and protocols. Uh, these are so egregious and contradictory now that uh, people uh, in the mainstream, quote-unquote, are writing about the fall of U.S. democracy, uh, the emergence of a civil war, uh, looking at the analogs with other civil wars that have occurred in, 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 in other countries. So that uh, we have a lot to think about in how to actualize a progressive citizenship that, as you point out, is also connected to the contradictions of the U.S. and the rest of the world. Uh, the United States uh, holds these um, extraterritorial uh, economic sanctions uh, outside of the protocols of nations established in the United Nations of economic warfare sanctions, uh, over 800 military bases uh, all around the world. Uh, the supplying of more and more uh, weapons uh, to the Ukrainians uh, without actualizing anything commensurate along the lines of democracy, and so that more and more Ukrainians uh, being killed, infrastructure destroyed, more and more Russian um, soldiers, young men and young women in the military of Russia are being destroyed, a proxy war uh, now expanding, and a food crisis which then they want to put solely uh, on um, the Russians uh, without saying to people that Russian grain exports, which are significant as a part of the breadbasket of the world, are prohibited by U.S.-NATO uh, uh, sanctions, um, that um, the, the failure to deal with Russia as a part of Europe and to respect its integrity with the expansion of NATO not only uh, towards the borders uh, of, of Russia, but also the expansion of NATO now as an organization around the world directed against China. These contradictions are, too, are merging in the real world. And citizens in the United States have to break out of this insular notion of American exceptionalism that the world turns on what happens inside the United States. And to see how these contradictions are being played out around the rest of the world, and not only hurting millions of people around the world, literally billions of people around the world, but also hurting citizens inside the United States with higher food prices, deteriorating health uh, uh, circumstances, undermining uh, basic issues of, of voting, uh, again, the second-class citizenship of women, and so forth and so on. So for us as citizens, we have a responsibility not only in defense of our own democratic interests, but our responsibility uh, and obligation to the rest of the world, because the world is so integrated. And we're at one of those teaching moments. And I think it's really important uh, for us to take every opportunity to urge and support citizenry across the United States uh, to look at really what is going on and to act on that. And therein, despite the theatricality and the procedural nature of these ongoing investigations, investigations, uh, that go on forever without any one of a major players going to jail, they are nevertheless instructive as a part of the political education going on uh, that needs to go on. 
Yeah, I, I think that's the way I, I have been approaching these, you know, January 6th investigations. Of course, they're not going to um, lead to any any kind of criminal anything um, in regard to the people that are being exposed and their actions that are being exposed. But, you know, for for the political education that it that they do provide in showing really, I think, the, the hypocrisy of people who have been so law and order, pro-Constitution, you know, Blue Lives Matter, they were completely unconcerned with all of those things during that time. Um, so I, I think it's instructive in that way. But I think we're also at a really instructive time where, you know, we have a Democratic administration, and we've talked about this several times before, that, you know, we have pointed out the problems of the Biden administration uh, many, many times leading up up to the election and certainly now that he is president two years in and oh my God, look at how terrible things are. You know, he he is downplaying the obvious recession that we are teetering on the brink of if we're not in already. And it's not just that the United States is facing a recession. We're talking about a global recession. So the idea of Americans still being very uh, indoctrinated into this American exceptionalism and, and everything that goes along with it, it, it's it's really leading to people to believe that the rest of the world is suffering economically, but that can't possibly happen to the United States. And And how do we get through that serious, serious fog, indoctrination, you know, wool over the eyes, whatever we want to call it, when the president of the United States is not even being honest about what this country is facing that the rest of the world is facing also. The, the president of the United States or the status quo of the Democratic Party or the status quo of, of whatever variation of the Republican Party, and most importantly, in terms of political education, uh, the so-called mainstream press, the so-called liberal press, uh, for example, saying, well, um, is this just a mistake or an error on the part of the Secret Service? Uh, they're saying everything, but this could be collusion, that this is a part of another variation of the deep state in which uh, right-wing uh, fascist orientations over many, many decades now have been has been inculcated and socialized uh, and routinized uh, within the context of the quote-unquote Secret Service, of course it's secret, they're not going to tell you the truth, uh, that um, the, the, another symptom that the system is, is, is just not working. Now, what do we do about it other than complain about it? Uh, we continue to organize. This is one of the battles among progressives and, and socialists is the significance of the electoral front. The architecture of government uh, has been and will be for well into the foreseeable future um, um, uh, managed by people who come from some index of popular uh, uh, support uh, through the voting process. It is not the only front. It is not even, in my view, ultimately the most important front. But it is a, a fulcrum around which the steward of governance goes on. And therefore, we have to take up these midterm elections and the 2024 elections, not as another separate iteration of voting, but looking at the continuous motion over the last many, many decades 
in which the organization of trade unions, the organization of women and LGBTQT uh, organizations, the movement of young people, the new fresh leadership uh, in black li- and the multiple expressions of Black Lives Matter, which so catalyzed the nation uh, into action and catalyzed the globe, for that matter, into action in the, the murder of George Floyd. We have to look at these movements, join these movements, strengthen these movements, because it is through the experience of engagement that people's consciousness will grow about what kind of leadership, what kind of organized political power is actually needed. And we have to work through the contradictions of the systems that now dominate us and turn them against themselves in order to create, in the long run, uh, something new and, and sustainable. And this is one of those moments, given the global crisis and the interconnectedness that we just laid out of what's happening on the national level uh, in domestic politics in regard to what's happening on the international level. Uh, we have to work through this, this, this now uh, encirclement of, of sort of empty, hollowed, formalistic diversity that we talked about. we got a black person who heads the Pentagon, a vice president who's a black woman, a black person at the U.N., and black and brown and Asian Pacific American, this and that, and very significant management roles and life-defining dimensions, both domestically and internationally. And for the most part, they're carrying out the same old framework, and even as they jockey for themselves and people from their respective communities to emerge at higher levels within that, uh, this only further complicates and obscures the problem. It does not solve the problem. So this is also a context uh, of diversion that, that we've got to deal with in this moment. And again, uh, this crisis is, is right for not just education, but for organizing and, and pushing uh, to change the stewardship of governance where we possibly can do that. Yeah, definitely. I think that stewardship piece is is so, so important because the stewardship, I mean, it speaks to uh, a question of power in terms of what does it mean for one to really be self-determined? What does it mean to really be able to uh, uh, control one's destiny and to actually have the decisions that impact you be in your hands, which is the complete opposite of what we live through right now under this system, which why I think it can be difficult sometimes for people to sort of envision this uh, new society, this new dispensation that we're speaking about, because it would, by its very nature, have to be uh, really indistinguishable from what we see right now. But um, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Mr. James Early is here. You know, Mr. Early, in speaking of <clears throat> the whole uh, class issue here in the United States and 
how conditions uh, continue to deteriorate here. I mean, uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, July 24th marked the 13th anniversary of the last time there was an increase to the federal minimum wage. So on July 24th, 2009, uh, the minimum wage was increased from 515 to 725, where it remains to this very day. And we're in a condition here in the U.S. where, you know, the prices of everything are going up and up and up, and yet wages have stagnated. So you mentioned a moment ago about how this system just doesn't work. This capitalist system simply does not function. Um, for the benefit of the masses of uh, uh, struggling people, not only here in this country, but uh, all around the world. And of course, you know, we're told that, uh, uh, you know, that any other system or the thought of having any other system in this country besides capitalism is is uh, just insanity. But yet and still, it's clear that this is the very system that is causing so many of the problems uh, uh, facing our material conditions on a daily basis. You know what I mean? And so we're in a a country that's becoming more and more expensive to live or it's becoming more and more expensive to do things as basic as uh, buy food or formula for babies and things like that. And um, I think that's why the ruling class has to sort of exert so much energy to try to justify this system and to indoctrinate and propagandize the rest of us so that we can keep believing that lie that, you know, this is the greatest system that there ever could be. You know what I mean? And so it's just this odd sort of thing where the ruling class uh, tries to convince us that a system that hurts us is actually the best thing for us. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, as such, Mr. Early, I feel like um, the capitalist system itself is just so clearly, you know, the real core contradiction that's facing the United States and this world. And uh, we'll have to address ourselves to it, I think, certainly at some point, uh, because I I feel like under a new system, under a different system that uh, prioritizes, you know, people over dollar bills, then these questions as basic as, you know, voting and uh, uh, abortion rights and women's liberation and self-determination, these are, you know, uh, not that these are things that are sort of automatically fixed, but they uh, have a different way of playing out when they're ensconced uh, uh, into uh, sort of the fabric, if you will, of a society instead of simply being a law uh, that can be overturned, because that is the process we've seen under this system. We fight and fight for things like uh, the right to vote. And over time, these uh, rights get rolled back little by little by little. So it's like a kind of contraction that we're seeing uh, within the this capitalist imperialist system as we see them on the decline. And uh, that decline is going to signal even more suffering for uh, the struggling people of this country on this earth. And as such, it seems like we should be really be keeping an eye on what sort of system comes next that will, you know, put those needs of humanity at the center of uh, that new society. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, this is, you know, I've been thinking in recent times of, of um, how to articulate better uh, our notions, our understanding of the system um, this economic system of capitalism in which we live, and to give it a, a sociology uh, that is not just a sort of a formally structural of um, 
working people on one hand being exploited by capital capitalists, those who control and own uh, the means of uh, intellectual production, uh, popular cultural production, um, uh, education, um, economic relations, uh, access to public services, but to also understand the fundamental constructs that a lot of us work with, you work with, uh, that is the working class, uh, and being an African-American in that context in the history of enslaved Africans and the development of uh, a mature capitalism in the so-called New World and this in the Americas, which is now the most, uh, the, the Latin America, the most unequal region of the world where the great majority of the people in the Americas live, Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, and one of the things that I think, one of the battles that we have to take up more squarely, even as we critique capitalists and those who dominate and control and the increase of billionaires as, it, as, there, as there is an increase and the poor and the marginalized and, and a decrease in the middle class is our fellow Americans in the working class who vote for these right-wing, fascist, homophobic, uh, macho, imperial warmongers and not see them simply as, as sort of the deplorables or pawns being moved around the board uh, by this greater force or some abstract concept that they are alienated from their own objective interests, um, because they are a part of the front of the cannon fodder that's being unleashed across this nation in terms of vigilante terrorism, uh, in terms of outright attacks on uh, women's rights to control their own bodies, the terrorist attacks uh, on abortion centers, uh, and the racism, and so forth and so on. And that's a contradiction that we've got to get a handle on. And and to confront uh, both our fellow citizens, our neighbors, uh, those in our synagogues and our mosques and our Protestant churches and our fraternities and sororities, and also confront the media, as we obviously have to take on uh, the dominant corporate class and, and their handmaidens, to use a sexist term, uh, in, um, in, in the steward of governance at local and federal levels. But I am really concerned that half of this country, for whatever sectoral or common interest, vote for these fascist, racist, homophobes. And there is a tendency across the spectrum to sort of let them off the hook by talking about the power, the propagandizing power of these more dominant forces. And while we have to deal with that, I think we've also got to figure out a, a more direct strategy deal with our fellow Americans uh, who go into the military out of economic conscription, uh, learn these processes, enter the police departments, uh, and, uh, and now are concerned that they are infiltrated not only in the ranks and files of the military, but the higher echelons who clearly have known about this and I suspect uh, have been uh, uh, involved in and actually manufacturing this. And we see a lot of these top generals and whatnot come out, and they are part of a right-wing fascist uh, dismantle the administrative bourgeois state, uh, the Bannon kinds of folks. So we have a lot of work to do in terms of how whether our terminology reflects the actual sociology and dynamics of this capitalist system in an instrumentalist way 
that will help people through political education organize and confront at all levels uh, of the contradictions that have us in this crisis situation of, of health care and food and, and housing. Uh, rent has gone up tremendously for here, example, in Washington, D.C., in some instances, about a thousand or more dollars in some instances. Uh, and um, many working class people are voting for these right wing racist fascists. So that's something that's a challenge before in political education and organizing. Yeah, and I feel like with the the, uh, you know, intentionality that we have to have in confronting these issues, I think we have to go back to where where we kind of started to see this this movement, uh, this right wing movement kind of coalesce. And that's around the issue of immigration. You know, it's it's it was it was like the the first big, I guess, national political uh, a campaign that people really, really started to pay attention to with these, you know, crazy right wing fascist uh, uh, bigots when they, you know, started to demonize immigrants and talking about the border wall, even though both Democratic and Republican administrations have happily built sections of the so-called border wall. And, and this is it, it, particularly as we're talking about issues that you just raised, Mr. Early, the 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 rise in rent, uh, you know, the the rise in costs that everyday working people are enduring. Well, those the immigrants face those issues, you know, the lack of affordable health care. Immigrants face those issues even more deeply than we do because they are immigrants, right? And they are outside of the system. So if we're not having a conversation about what causes immigration, and that is usually conflict and where people who who are immigrants, where they come from, when we start to look at the governments that are involved in destabilizing uh, the societies that those people come from, like people in uh, uh, the Central African Republic and South Sudan and the Syrian Arab Republic in Afghanistan and Nigeria, those are all places where the U.S. and its allies have been involved in fomenting wars and destabilization. So I think that while we're having a conversation about these issues that we face, Domestically, because of this, you know, brutal, oppressive capitalist system, I don't think we can divorce it from the way imperialism does the exact same thing to people who we call immigrants, but they're really just victims of the same system, Mr. Early. I, I think you're, you're you're absolutely right. Um, my my youngest son and I have uh, I joke with him about the real replacement people is gentrification. <laughs> that uh, it's 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 not immigrants. It's 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 these it's, anyway. That's that's a, 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 a joke aside. Uh, we have not, and including among progressives and socialists, really laid out. It seems to me the direct uh, connection between uh, immigration and U.S. empire, U.S. and and what does that mean in terms of U.S. imperialism, the expansion of U.S. interests into these uh, underdeveloped and developing nations of the world, particularly uh, with Central America, South America, uh, and, and the Caribbean, notwithstanding the increased numbers of immigrants who are, who are forced economically and out of conflict out of Africa into Europe and into Brazil and up to Mexico and into the United States. And that is the elite class of the United States and in, in its corporations and its manufacturing uh, in its 
in its food development and its uh, development of cars and in the governance stewards that are elected uh, to put forth international policies are involved in a super exploitation of these communities where immigrants are coming from, where they cannot survive. Billions and trillions of dollars go into places like Colombia with eight military bases or into uh, Guatemala and Honduras, uh, where Hillary Clinton and others supported the emergence of authoritarian uh, fascists or the economic push out from Cuba. And so we have to make this connection that it is collusion with the elite explorers of those nations by the elite elements of our corporate uh, entities here in the United States and our governance stewards that really is leading uh, to these unnatural flows of citizens uh, out of their home environment that are rich in minerals, lithium, Argentina and Bolivia and Mexico um, and Chile are the center of the global lithium. And you have these heavy migratory patterns within Latin America and out of Latin America towards uh, economic opportunity here in the United States. And so we have to unravel that for citizens to understand this connection between domestic policy and the immigrant flow and how the super exploitation uh, of these people uh, is leading to their expulsion. Uh, beyond uh, co uh, military conflicts or uh, uh, gangs, uh, it is basically economic survival that the elites are not providing while they are reaping the benefits of major support uh, coming from both uh, Republican and Democratic parties that grow governance in this country. That's really the broader, deeper context of this immigration issue and what needs to be done about it. Of course, then there's also the white supremacy scare, including an increased number of black people and Latinos who buy in to that immigrants are coming here to take our jobs. And we have to also confront them very directly, very strongly. Yeah. And, you know, what what Mr. Early is hitting on, Jackie, I think is sort of a classic example <clears throat> of the divide and conquer tactics of the ruling class in order of sort of uh, pointing to the immigrants themselves as being the cause for our material issue with, of course, no interrogation of the conditions of their countries of, or of origin. Uh, what are the conflicts and uh, uh, circumstances that motivated them to leave in the first place? What is the role of the U.S. in that? Uh, all of that, that whole aspect of things is just completely cut off. And you're just supposed to see these people, these other human beings as this uh, horde of thieves that's coming to take something from you and your family. But see, that's a very purposeful um, misdirection of uh, anger and energy. And see, this is an aspect of political education that I think, uh, uh, you know, we should really be clear about. It's not just sort of a, a rote memorization thing where we're uh, reading a bunch of books. It's about sort of understanding what it means to have a critical analysis and quite literally, why do things operate in the way um, that they do and why is it that we're told that the issue at the core of it is everything except the system that governs this society and uh, the class who benefits 
from that system. You know what I mean? Uh, and so in, in, in looking at it, that right there, I think, could be a real corrective to that kind of uh, anti-immigrant xenophobia and, and out-and-out racism that is so uh, prevalent in the United States and uh, could possibly, you know, be a kind of model or an example of how we can make real inroads with some of the backward tendencies that, that a lot of us are inculcated with. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is why as anti-imperialists, we are anti-imperialists, not just we don't just oppose capitalism, because when we simply talk about, you know, we're opposing capitalism, we're always narrowing that focus to the domestic issues. And that that not only ignores the international reach of capitalism and the fact that capitalists the people who love capitalism and prop up the system, Sean, they are internationalists. Right. They are an international cabal of thieves and exploitators and oppressors. So there's no way we can oppose or dismantle or even mildly, lightly challenge or change capitalism in this country without recognizing that it is a global system. It is international. It is imperialism. And we have to connect our struggle domestically with the struggle of people around the world. We say this all the time, at least once a week on this show. We must connect our struggle uh, domestically to people around the world who are fighting the exact same system. Because a lot of the people we're demonizing, talking about they're coming here to get our jobs, they're the ones who are being, who are the victims of the international arm of capital. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's a fact. And that's why, you know, it, it's important that imperialism look like a, a positive thing to, to us. And that's why, you know, the crimes of uh, the U.S. never-ending war machine have to be papered over so that we don't see how those crimes are directly connected to what we suffer here. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Mr. James Early, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.